I'm going to introduce you to Jim the Christian. Jim the Christian has a normal job. He has normal family relationships. His life seems like it's going okay. He seems pretty happy. But the outside is deceiving. Jim really struggles. He struggles with his battle against sin. He struggles because he thinks that he's alone in this fight. And other Christians don't seem to have the issues that Jim has. More often than not, Jim would say that he's going through a spiritually hard time. He's discouraged because all he can see is his sin, and his love for God dwindles. He makes it to church, but he's just there because that's where he feels like he has to go on Sunday mornings. And he doesn't really engage with anyone, and he's hoping that no one will engage with him. Jim especially struggles with guilt and shame. He just can't seem to get it together. Is this God's plan for the Christian life? Why do other Christians have so much more joy all the time? Is my sin really supposed to be this discouraging, he asks. This week, Jim really blew it. And looking at his life, looking at the consequences for his sins, it's all bleak. Jim knows that Christians aren't supposed to be helpless and despairing, but it seems like this is just his lot in life. I think that we can all identify with Jim a little bit. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're glad that I used the name Jim and not your name. When we've struggled with obedience and with sin, where can we turn? Of course, the answer is Christ, and that's the obvious Easy, no-duh answer. But practically, how do we do this? How can we turn back to our God? What must we think about? What are the tangible places that we can see God working in our life? Does God care, or are we just left to drift along until we find the way ourselves? Today, in Micah, we find a people who are very much in this situation. They've sinned repeatedly. They've worshipped at the altars of other gods. They're consumed with pride. They hate their brother. They're selfish. Yet Micah, in his closing words of this book, has a word for them and a word for us. Despite the negativity that our sin brings, like a a giant storm cloud just looming over our life, God is faithful still. Though our sin and our guilt might seem consuming, God is there. So who can we look to? There's really only one answer, and it's our great God. Today, you need to take courage. Find hope. Because even as you struggle and falter in your faith, God still cares for you. God is still faithful. God is loving with his discipline. He's abundant in his restoration. He's caring in his guidance. And he's overwhelming in his forgiveness. For Micah, all of this is grounded in God's faithfulness to his promises. 
And like Micah, we can also base our hope in God's faithfulness. Yes, sometimes our circumstance seems dire. Yet even then, our hope must be in what God has done and promised, not on our impending future. So what is the message for us this morning? When you struggle with the fallout of sin, your hope must be in your God who deals with your sin. We'll see this in four different encouragements. Four encouragements that show us God's faithfulness to us in our sin. These four encouragements reset our thinking and direct our hope to rightly see who God is and what God does. Before we dive into this text, I need to set the stage for the book of Micah. Before the time of Micah, Israel was a unified kingdom under David. So unified under David and his son Solomon. But shortly after the end of Solomon's rule, the kingdom was divided. And really, this is because of Solomon's sin. And so we have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. The northern kingdom had mostly bad kings, and they were quickly swept away into judgment, even in this time of Micah here. But the southern kingdom had a mix of good and bad kings, and they lasted a little bit longer. Micah was the prophet who ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the years leading up to Micah's ministry, there was prosperity in the land. Yet despite the outward blessing and the obedience seemingly coming from the people, there was internal decay in their hearts. And so Micah's message was for God's people to see that, yes, God does care about your actions, but even more, God cares about your heart behind your actions. The purpose of God's covenant with his people was not about laws, but it was about keeping true, sincere relationship with Yahweh. The book of Micah then stands as a lawsuit, God's lawsuit against his people, to show that they had been utterly unfaithful to him. They had sinned against one another, they sinned against God, and this just reveals their broken covenant relationship. And so God is going to bring judgment on them for their sin. And this is what Micah has been talking about all the way up until this point that we are at in this morning. And it leaves us with this question, what hope is there for God's people? They've blown it. They're covered in guilt. They have no excuse, and they know it. And we can be in this position too. We know the truth. We know what God has said is good, and yet we forsake it anyways, and we run after the desires of our heart. So where is our hope? Where's our hope when we've blown it? Well, the prophet Micah will tell us, we have hope because God has a purpose in discipline. And that's our first encouragement that we see here in verses 7 through 10. Look now at verse 7. Some of your Bibles have 7 as the start of a new section. Others have it at the end of the first section in the chapter. But either way, it serves as a transition for Micah. He's moving away from the despair around him, and he's turning his attention to God and what God is doing. And so verse 7, But as for me, 
I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God hears me. Micah knows who to turn to. He knows where he can find hope and answers, even in this time of distress and impending judgment. Notice that he mentions God three times in that one verse. God is the only one to whom Micah can turn. And so Micah's posture and his hope was supposed to be a model for all of Judah to follow in the face of the judgment that God had promised. Now I'm sure if you spent any time in the prophet's reading uh, and just trying to understand what's going on, there have been places where you're just not sure who's speaking. Is it the prophet? Is it God? Who are they speaking to? Well, we have some of that here in verses 8 through 10. Micah switches voices. He's not just speaking for himself. He's really speaking as Jerusalem herself. He's giving a voice to the proper attitude Jerusalem should have, even as she faces judgment from God. Verse 8. Don't rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I've fallen... I will rise. Though I'm in the darkness of this judgment, the Lord is a light to me. He will guide me through this. And so Micah's word is a warning to those who will be the ones administering God's judgment on Israel. And he's saying, don't mock in this. You think that you're mighty here, but God's actually using you to accomplish his purpose. Verse 9 continues. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Why is Micah confessing this? Well, it's because Micah recognizes that they have sinned against God. But he also knows that after that judgment, after that discipline, God will bring me out into the light, he says, from the darkness of judgment into the light of righteousness. And then, guess what? Verse 10, my enemy will see what's really happened. How God was working through this all along. And now what a fool they'll look like. They questioned my God, but now the tables are turned, and they are really just as valuable as the mud in the streets. Okay, so what's happening in these verses? What's the big idea? Well, it's this. Micah is explaining what the proper perspective should be in the face of judgment. It's not a hopeless, despairing outlook for God's people. Actually, this judgment should provide hope for God's people. A theologian put it like this, Hope is not the absence of divine judgment. Hope is the knowledge that divine judgment has a purpose. In other words, Micah is showing how God is faithful to his people, even in discipline. And because of who God is, his people can have a confidence that he is doing this for a purpose that will be ultimately for their good. He's going to bring them back into the light, back into a good relationship with himself. This is a parent who lovingly disciplines their child, not because they get a vindictive joy out of it, but because the parent knows that this is best for their child to learn obedience and to learn good from evil. So let's Think about how this works for us today as believers. Should we expect judgment to fall upon us whenever we sin? I didn't read my Bible this week. So if lightning strikes my car and burns it to the ground, that's God's judgment on me. 
I yelled at my kids on the way to church this morning. So God is going to judge me by having me hear a sermon about this this morning. Well, not exactly. First, we need to understand that God has a special covenant relationship with his chosen people. That covenant relationship had these stipulations in it. If they were obedient and faithful, they would be blessed in the land. But if they were unfaithful, they would be judged and carried out of the land. And we are no longer under this covenant. In fact, as believers today, we are under a new covenant, a better covenant in the blood of Christ. And so all past and present and future sin has been judged fully on the cross. So then how can we draw truth and application from this passage? I think it requires two important components. First, we need to have the right view of God. Has God changed? Does God still hate sin? And the answer is, God has not changed, and yes, God does still hate sin. So what about our sin? Well, even though we rest fully saved in Christ, we still sin, and our sin is still an affront to God. But God, in his mercy, does not leave us in our sin. He works through his word and the promptings of the Spirit to sanctify us and help us fight sin. Because we've been adopted as sons, right, as brothers with Christ, God disciplines us as his children. So hear the words from Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So in this way, we can say that the Lord does discipline us today. Right? And it's to, to bring us into the light. So as we falter in sin, as you've given in to the temptation of your flesh, when you click that link, when you curse your boss under your breath, when you hate your spouse, right? God does not like that. Right? He does not approve. And unrepentant sin will not be left undealt with by our good father. He will deal with it. And sometimes, rooting out that sin from all the dark corners of our hearts, it hurts. It can sting. It can leave many tears. And sometimes the scars from the snares of sin don't really fade in this life. They can have long-lasting consequences. And yet, what is the word from Micah? Are you to crumble into never-ending despair over your sin? No. No. The word for us to see is that God is good, that he disciplines not out of anger, but out of love, and he wants to bring us into the light. Is your guilt crushing you? Are you repressing the truth in your heart out of the fear of the consequences? Well, here's the joyful news for you. God is showing you in his word today that he is a good God. So repent. Confess. He forgives. Very practically, find a brother or sister in Christ and ask them to help you in this. Even if the discipline seems frightening now, 
know that God's purpose in it is for you to see his good, for you to be, it's for your good, and it's to see his glory. And so wait for God, look for him as he works through the circumstances in your life, and let him bolster your hope as he brings you into the light. Two, as we consider how God brings us out of sin and into the truth, we see our second encouragement here. God promises restoration. Micah desires God's people to focus not on their circumstances and the things around them, but on what God has promised and what God will do in the future. The hope for people who had wandered so far from God was to turn and look at what he had promised to do. And what is this promise? He promises to restore. Look now at verses 11 and 13. Micah is now speaking to Jerusalem and God's people. And he says, It will be a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. Look, see what God will do. Walls will be rebuilt. Now, this is not the normal word for walls. What you probably have in mind is a big stone wall that goes around a city to defend it. But here we have a different word for a different type of wall. This is a, a wall for laying out property lines and divisions between fields and orchards and pasture lands and places to live. And the idea is that the land will be returned to its intended purpose. One day, everything will be set right and ordered again like God intended. The restoration promised is something that seems impossible to consider with all the judgment looming, yet this is where Micah points the people. So when will this happen? Look at the beginning of 11 and 12. You see, a day in that day. That's our clue. In the prophets, this language is used to talk about the day of the Lord, the day that God will judge sin and save his people. It's a day of judgment and salvation. And this is literally all over the prophets, especially the minor prophets. And the challenge for us today is to figure out when exactly this is. And so uh, let me explain it this way. Say we're driving across the middle of America. We're heading over miles of endless prairie. We're heading west. And as we start to look on the horizon, we start to see mountains poking through. We're seeing the Rocky Mountains. And if I were to turn to you in the car and ask you, how far apart do you think those mountains are? Well, in the car, you go, I don't know. They look like they're right next to each other. But actually, if we were to get in the mountains and at the base of them and start driving amongst them, we would see that the mountains that seemed this close were, in fact, far, far apart. Well, the prophets, including Micah, are out on the prairie. They see the mountains, but they don't know how far apart they are. And that's not really their message. Their message is that there are mountains ahead. And so when is this day going to happen? Well, Micah is just saying, it's coming. He can see it. But what it's going to look like entirely and when, it, when will it be, he can't say for sure. And so for us knowing history and the rest of our Bibles, we can say that, well, some of the people were restored after the exile. Some of the land was repurposed, but not all of it. And so what we see is that this will not be fully, finally fulfilled until that final future day of the Lord. And even more on that, 
Look at uh, verse 11 and 12. They, the people, will come to you. Who's the they? Well, turn back to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So just a few chapters earlier. And just listen as I read these two verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days, all right, so there's our day clue, in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So as we come back to chapter 7, these are those people. These are the they. They are going to be coming. The nations are going to be coming to Yahweh as well. And so as God restores Israel and the intended purpose for Israel, God is also going to return and restore the global intended purpose of Israel to be a light to the nations and bring the nations to Yahweh. And so all of this will be fulfilled on that day. So what about the rest of the world? The rest of the world who doesn't come and seek out God? Well, verse 13, we can see that they are judged for their deeds. And Genesis 12, 3 is really seeing its fulfillment here. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you. God has, has finally set the, word, the world aright. He's restored his people. He's acting righteously and it's as he intended. And so Micah wants to remind his people in his day that this is who God is, that he's a God who restores. He doesn't give up on his people. He doesn't forsake them. They will be restored. The blessings and the promises of the land, the relationship that they have with God, all this is going to be far extended so that even all the nations would turn to God. This is his purpose in this. This is the God that we serve. Christian, if you are downcast, if you're discouraged, if your heart is sorrowful, if your trial is consuming, look to this God. He restores his people as he's intended all along, and he will do this for you. He doesn't forget his promises. What is the key for Israel in this moment? It's that they need to look at their future not their present. And that's the same thing that we must do. Look to your future. I want to pause right there and just give you guys an assignment. Today, at lunch, you should go around and just list out all the things that God has promised, all the things that we are looking forward to in the future. Because God is great and he will fulfill those promises. We will see those things. We will be restored as his people for all time. And so it's good to just sometimes think through those promises to us and see them very tangibly and see how others think about them and so that we can encourage one another. Here's just one to consider, Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This is the promise from your God who restores. Our God's restoration is greater than anything we can imagine. So take courage, 
Don't be dragged down by the gloom of the present. Look to the mountains that God has put before us. Look to our great God and the future that he has promised. Micah's next move in this text is to directly pray to God. He boldly cries out to God for his tender shepherding care. And so this is our third encouragement for those in the darkness of their sin. God shepherds with care. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff. It's it's an imperative. It's a cry out to God. God, please do this. Fulfill this. And this imagery of a shepherd is all throughout the Bible. Yahweh is the good shepherd. He guides his people and he cares for them. And throughout the book of Micah, we actually see the shepherd metaphor occurring in the context of salvation, in this context of hope. This is the shepherd king who's going to come from Bethlehem in Micah 5. And here, Micah is calling to him because he knows that this, this king, this shepherd, is not just a man, but he's God. And this God, right, this shepherd, can guide his people perfectly. He can protect them fully. And this shepherd's flock are his inheritance. He has all authority over them for their care and provision. And they live in a special place, alone in the land that has been set for them. God's people have a unique relationship with him. They are afforded a special relationship, a special place. Notice that Micah asked for his people to dwell in a specific place, in the land of Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Days of old just refers to when David had established the kingdom. But what's really important here is where those two places are. They are in the northern kingdom, and Micah is in the southern kingdom. So why is Micah saying this? What is Micah assuming? He knows that this shepherd, when he comes, when he restores his people, when he's guiding them, he's going to restore the kingdom. Right? He's going to be able to take them to the best places in the land. He's going to care for them in this way. And so he's looking forward to all of God's faithfulness, to all of these promises that, that God has made. Verse 15 is another interjection into this text. So who's speaking here? This time, it's not Micah. It's the Lord directly speaking to Israel. And what does Yahweh say? He says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. If there was any doubt that God would truly shepherd his people, here is the answer. God responds. He goes, remember who I am? I'm the God who redeems. I save. I'm the God that worked miracles for you. All the nations saw. I provide for my people. And so just like the Exodus when God's wonders were heard by the nations around, well, when God again saves his people, his marvelous things, his miracles will be seen by all the nations. And Micah explains how the nations will respond when they see Yahweh's might. They will be ashamed of their own might. In comparison to God, when contrasted against his power, they have nothing. So what do they do? How do they respond? Well, in shame and fear, they will be on their stomachs. And this is an allusion to Genesis 3, where the serpent was cursed to be on his belly and to eat the dust. 
This is the outcome for all of God's enemies. Because at the end, all shall turn and fear God and be in dread of him and his might. So what's the point? Micah wants Israel to see that their God is their shepherd. And not only that, that he was going to send a good shepherd who is so good that he would tenderly care and provide for every need they would ever have. And this is who our God is. He's the one who redeems, he provides, he cares. And this morning, if you have a personal relationship with Christ, you have a relationship with this same shepherd. Does this shepherd care for you? Absolutely he does. He will never abandon you. He knows you by name. So no matter how many cracks you fall into, how many times you break your leg, how many times you go wandering off, ignoring his warnings, he is your shepherd and he will care for you. So I have a few questions for you about your shepherd. Do you listen to your shepherd's voice? Do you know the sound of it? Are you turning to him in his word daily? Are you seeking his counsel for your life and the decisions that you have to make? Or are you going to your favorite podcaster? Do you pray to him for daily provision? Or are you an independent sheep who can handle it on your own for the most part until you run into something really big? Micah wants the people to cry out to the God who shepherds them. That's the same today. When you are wandering down a dark path, maybe that's from your own sin causing this, or maybe it's the circumstances in your life, your shepherd is not too far away. He hears your prayer. So call out to him for protection. Call on, lean on him for, for, for guidance. He loves to protect. He loves to guide. That's who he is. He's a God who redeems and loves. So cry out to him. We now reach the crescendo of Micah's message. What gives hope to despairing people in sin? Well, we've seen that, that God has a purpose in his discipline, that God promises restoration, that God shepherds with care. And now finally, this is really the linchpin that holds all these truths together. God is overwhelming in his forgiveness. So encouragement number four, God overwhelmingly forgives. Micah now turns to the ultimate truth that can allow for sinful people to have a relationship with a holy God. God somehow, some way, forgives sin. And it leaves Micah stunned. He turns and says, Who is a God like you? Answer, No one. There is, there's no God like this. There's no other thing like this. This God is amazing because of what he does with sin, he forgives. He forgives our sin, our rebellion, our unfaithfulness, our apostasy. Micah is explaining that because of this God, right, this is just mind-blowing. It's paradigm-shifting. How, how can he do this? Well, he pardons iniquity. Literally, he lifts it up and bears it. This is the same imagery from uh, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, where the scapegoat takes and bears up the sins of the people and it's sent away. 
He's saying God does this. God does this with our sin. He passes over our transgression, our, our rebellion against him, so that he can save his remnant. The end of 18 is really fascinating. He does not retain his anger forever. He doesn't cling to it. He doesn't hold on. So it's important to know what's being said here and what's not being said. Notice that it doesn't say that God never gets angry at sin. God is wrathful towards rebellion. Yet what does it say? It says that he does not retain his anger forever. So how? Does God change? Well, this is the, the mystery and the marvel of the Old Testament. Somehow, someway, the barrier that is between sinful man and holy God is removed. God will not be eternally angry at his people because their sin is removed from them. And this is the mystery of the Old Testament. How can God do this? And maybe Micah doesn't even fully understand how God is going to do this, but what does he know? That God will do it. That God will forgive his people of their sin. And that sin, with all of its guilt, with all of its rebellion, will still be punished, yet God's people will go free. And why? Well, it's because of who God is. God delights in steadfast love. He finds joy in forgiving sin. He has a pleasure in this thing that he's doing to bring his people to himself. This is who God is. He forgives because he loves offering mercy and showing grace to undeserving people. Verses 19 and 20 give two reasons why God forgives and loves in this way. God has the power to redeem. We see that first in verse 19. Micah is so confident that God will show compassion on his people again, that he'll forgive. And why is this so? It's because God himself will tread out the sins of the people. He'll subdue their guilt. He'll crush it like an enemy. Kind of brings to mind Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, that, that's what God does with our sin. And for the Israelites, the depths of the sea, that was associated with Sheol and with the places of the dead. And so here the imagery is just God kills our sin, crushes it to death, and tosses it where it can never come back. He can redeem his people from its clutches for all eternity. Well, where else does Micah turn to explain God's forgiveness? Well, he ends there in verse 20 by looking at God's perpetual faithfulness. He's confident that God is able to forgive because God has shown faithfulness to his promises. God will not forsake what he's promised. He will bless his people and through them bless all the peoples of the earth. And so Micah bases really all these different hopes that we looked at this morning on this fact that God is fully faithful to his promises. Christian, God has not changed. And if anything, we see all this so much clearer because of the cross. So when we're disheartened by our sin, our lack of growth, our repeated failures, come and, and gaze at this wonder. God forgives. Who is a God like you? God, how can you forgive my sin? How can you pardon it? How can you just pass this over? Well, the answer is found in Jesus. 
our good shepherd. See, God doesn't just put all of his anger towards sin in a trash folder and then click erase. No, the, the only way that your sin is pardoned, that your rebellion is passed over, is that your Savior was crucified for you. He took the whippings. He took the nails in his hands. He took the tortures of the cross and the wrath of God upon himself so that he could take your punishment, so that he could forgive. And not only this, God delights in doing this because of his love for us, and this is how he shows it so clearly in the gospel. And so Micah, he's pointing his people in his day to this truth of who this God is. And we get to see all of his glory, all of his grandeur on the cross. And so the foundation of our hope must start here, that God forgives us. God forgives sinners. And so Christian, when you struggle with the consequences, the guilt, the distress, the continual letdowns, what must you know? Know that God forgives to the uttermost. The penalty is paid. It's who he is and it's how he loves. So seek his forgiveness and find the freedom from sin that he offers. Now here's a hard question. Friend, maybe you're sitting here and you can identify with some of this. Maybe you feel the guilt for your sin, but it's something that's uncomfortable for you to talk about. Despair is, is something that you try to avoid. Maybe you're here because you think that you can persuade God to accept you by your actions and that your church attendance is just another check mark on your report card. Well, here's the question. Do you have a true relationship with God? In each of these passages this morning, there were two groups of people. One group had hope and was promised forgiveness and salvation, and the other group rejected God. They rejected his promises, and ultimately, they'll reject God's forgiveness and face eternal judgment. So which group are you in? There is hope for you, and it's hope that's found in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. So repent of your sin. Turn and trust in Christ alone for salvation. God delights in forgiveness. He loves to show his love. So turn to him. How great is our God that he would glory in the redemption of sinners. I want to turn back to Jim the Christian from our introduction but I want you to put your name in there instead of Jim's. It's Tuesday afternoon this week, and you've blown it again. You did something dishonest at work. You lusted after someone in your mind all day. You yelled at your kids in anger. You gave into that temptation that no one even knows about. You're Jim, the Christian, and despair starts to set in. Like you're never going to get out of this. Sin and its yuck are just all over you. And maybe the consequences you think are so big that you can't fess up. 
that you need to, to hide this, to bury this, and try to forget about it. If you think your condition is hopeless. Well, here's the word for you today. There is hope for you because of who our God is. God works through our sin to bring us out into the light. God has promised to restore us. God himself will protect and guide you. And most wonderfully, God will forgive you of your sin. And this is not because of who you are, but it's because of who God is. So turn to our faithful, forgiving God and find your hope. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so great, and I pray that our words would be like the prophet Micah, that we would just exclaim, who is a God like this? Who is a God like you? Lord, help us this week. Humble us. Show our sin to us so that we can honor you and glorify you and asking for forgiveness. Lord, help us to praise you through the truths in this passage. In your name I pray, amen.